Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Heritage Financial are not affiliated. Welcome to Making Money Fun. I am so excited to be back with you. I am Shanna Tindrum, and I am joined by Heather Parker today. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. And Heather is an attorney, and you focus on estate planning, correct? Correct. Tell us a little bit about what estate planning entails. What are all the pieces to the puzzle that folks need to know about? Sure. So estate planning is really your method for making sure that your money and your assets get used for your benefit if you are ever incapacitated and that they are then distributed in the way you would wish when you are no longer here. The other piece of estate planning also has to do with medical directives, so making sure that you've designated who you would like to be able to make medical decisions for you in the event you can't make them for yourself, as well as some end-of-life choices. Okay. I suspect there were a lot of people caught off guard last year when COVID hit with those medical directives and even estate planning. So I really want to start today with sort of the basics on what folks need to have, or at least think about having, how often they need to look at it, and all of those fun things. So let's start with some of the living pieces, some of the medical directive pieces that folks really need to make sure they have in place. So there's really three key pieces for most folks. The first is a HIPAA release, which just indicates who they might like to be able to have access to medical information. This doesn't authorize any of these people to be able to make decisions for them, just lets them indicate who they would like to get information. So for instance, I'm in the hospital, somebody wants to call the nurse's station and see how I'm doing. Are they on the list of approved people to be able to get that update? The second piece is a medical power of attorney, which in Arizona, we're allowed to include a mental health care power of attorney, which not every state allows. It's part of the medical You get to indicate who you would like to make those medical decisions for you if you're ever in a position that you can't make them for yourself. That, as I said, also includes any mental health care decisions if folks would like to include that. The third piece is what we call a living will, which is really setting out end-of-life decisions. If I'm ever terminal, no chance of recovery, and I can't communicate anymore, sets out what my general wishes are, which is don't put me on a bunch of machinery. I don't want to be kept alive indefinitely. Um, I really would like to be kept comfortable in those last days of my life, but I don't want to be put on life-sustaining treatment, essentially, is the legal approach. But any of those types of things, I get to indicate whether I want to be an organ donor, um, if I'd like pain relief, which I highly suggest, um, those sorts of things. Those are the forms that some of us might remember as the Terry Schiavo documents, correct? So yes, that case was some time ago and was probably one of the most famous cases that brought up this particular issue, which is, do people want to be kept alive indefinitely when we're dealing with a quality of life issue? And a living will really allows you the ability to indicate what your position is when you don't have the ability to express yourself in that position. Your medical power of attorney can also lend some information to that as well. I often ask clients, are there particular directions you want to give, particular things you want to make clear with those who you are asking to make those decisions for you? I very highly recommend they have those conversations with those parties that they appoint, whether it's family members or friends or whomever it is, and really go into detail about what's important to them and and what isn't. 
And that certainly is probably the most famous case surrounding that issue. But as folks may or may not remember, it was a battle between family members about whether or not this young lady was to be kept alive when there was absolutely no chance she was ever going to recover. And while her parents wanted her to be kept alive, and presumably understandably so, as if I'm recalling correctly, it's difficult to let people go. But I think that factors into the whole decision-making process about who you are going to ask to serve in those roles. Make sure that it's not just the knee-jerk reaction of, is it my spouse? Is it my parents? Is it my sister? Is it my oldest child? We really need to think about the position we're going to put those people in and what we are really asking them to do. And are they capable of doing what we would want done as opposed to the decisions they might make for themselves? Because that's a big distinction. So it's very, very important to consider those things when we're thinking about who we want to appoint and then also the details that we go into when we're setting out those living wills. Yeah, that's a really great point. I know from um, the planning work that we do that more and more folks are living together and not getting married and not having that marriage in a legal sense also provides a ton of estate planning challenges, especially on the living document front. Is that what you're seeing as well? Absolutely. It's not only parties who have not married each other, but have long-standing relationships. When you look to the presumptions that the law creates, there is typically a presumption that a spouse is going to be able to serve in that role. But if the parties are not married, there's absolutely no legal presumption for them. Another issue where that comes up is a blended family. Mm. When you've got a spouse and perhaps adult children who are not from that spouse, and there's a difference of opinion about what's to happen to the party who is either incapacitated or having whatever the medical issue is, that's when it becomes even more complicated about who we've decided to put in what position. And sometimes folks will actually request that parties serve as a group and sort of hash it out together. Wow. There's benefits and drawbacks to that as well. So that one I can't imagine, honestly, that sounds really difficult. Well, you know, there are definitely times when it makes sense to do that. Mm -hmm. But you do also need to make sure that if you're creating a scenario where there's more than one person that gets to you know, weigh in their opinion, you got to create some rules of engagement. Yeah. Who gets to make the final decision? Is this a majority rules situation? Or is this a Somebody gets to, it's got to be unanimous, which is a, a nightmare to create. Yeah. Because it's unlikely that's going to happen. Right. Or is it going to be, we're going to give one person the final power to make the ultimate decision, regardless of what everyone else thinks? Yeah. And I guess from my perspective, Heather, what I've seen in the past with a lot of my client situations is that just having the clear direction of what mom or dad or your brother or sister or spouse would have wanted makes that unbearable time so much easier to deal with because then you're not having to guess or assume or, you know, take a shot in the dark at sort of what their wishes were. Absolutely. Because I think it's a subject that so many people don't even like to touch on. Yeah. So there's times when those people who've been appointed don't have any idea what that person actually wanted. So the conversations oh. are really important in indicating details as much as people are willing to do within their documents is really important. It's not just a cookie cutter standardized form. You've also got the issue of religion coming into play. So having those conversations with clients as well. We've got particular requests. We are of whatever faith, and this is the protocol for what happens in these situations, and we want that followed. Just presuming that your family or whoever you have appointed knows these things 
is not a good plan yeah. because they may or may not know. Yeah. They may know that you are of a certain faith, but they may not be aware of these sort of protocols or standard methods of approaching these situations that your religion may have. Oh, wow. That's a really good point. And so how do you recommend folks that have these documents in this living situation get that information to the folks that need to have it? Is there an electronic solution that you recommend? How do they disseminate that information? There are a lot of different methods. And frankly, I think it depends greatly on who the recipients are Mm, and how comfortable they are with technology. Uh, Because depending on our level of expertise, that can vary from here's a copy, we're going to keep it in the car Mm -hmm. to I've had plenty of clients that keep it in their glove box to here's a flash drive to there's online storage vaults. Yeah, where parties can actually store those documents online and determine who they're going to grant access to. Yep. Uh, the variety of different documents, whichever they feel they want those parties to have access to. There's also a state system through the Secretary of State's office where a party can lodge their medical directives with the state and they are issued a code. It's provided on a card that's essentially the size of your driver's license. Wow. My understanding is that that is accessible then at any hospital in the state of Arizona. All that has to be done is the code is provided and that can be pulled up. Now, again, that's limited to Arizona. So we have clients who are regularly traveling outside of the last year and a half yeah. to other places. <laughs> then it might. there are national services that do the same thing for a nominal fee. So there's a lot of options for making sure. Very, very cool. Yep. And you brought up a really good point. These documents are typically state-specific, correct? That is correct. While the concepts are generally the same as far as the directives go, the requirements for making them, quote, legal can vary from state to state. One state might require a notary. Others might require two witnesses. Um, There can be very specific statutory provisions. I mentioned earlier that Arizona allows for that mental health care power of attorney. That's not true in every state. So those things can be specific and important to know. Yeah. There's lots of changes in the law all the time, just like everything else. And there (laughs) are some states that allow for more aggressive addressing of end of life decisions. So it's important to know what your state allows and what it doesn't. Yeah, that's a really, really good point to make. And so you want to do these documents in the state that you reside full time. So if you're a snowbird and your permanent residence is, let's say, Minnesota or Iowa, you would probably want to do those documents in your home state, but maybe consult an attorney here in Arizona to make sure that everything works the way it's designed. Is that what I'm understanding? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. There's a difference between what's legal and what is practical and how things actually get used. So theoretically, if it was legal in the state in which it was executed, it should be legal anywhere else. Okay. We do, however, have the practical side of things where we are going to expect these things to actually work for us. So when (laughs) they are presented in a medical facility, if it's coming from a state where the requirements are significantly different, you could have some questions on the part of the uh, medical staff. But at the end of the day, as long as the essentials are there, it's unlikely you'll have a tremendous issue. Okay. That's really great. So let's shift our focus a little bit to the after you have passed away documents. I know that there's a lot of confusion among my clients about the difference between a will and a trust. Can you give us some details around that? Absolutely. The important thing to know is that if you don't have a will or a trust, Every state has statutes that indicate what happens to someone's assets when they pass. Mm. So if you have nothing, 
you still have something, but it might not be what you want. (laughs) State decides for you, in other words, right? They do. And particularly in Arizona, it's important to know that when we have a blended family situation, that may or may not go the way you had planned. Mm. The Arizona statutes are set out so that essentially everything goes to a surviving spouse unless there are children from outside of that marriage. If there are children from outside of that marriage, then the party who passes assets gets split. Wow. Between the surviving spouse and any children that are outside that marriage. That may not be what most parties are looking for. Wow. Okay. But having said that, a will essentially lets you indicate a couple of major things. It lets you indicate who you want to manage your estate when you pass. Mm -hmm. It lets you indicate where you want your assets to go. Okay. It also is the place where we indicate who we want to serve as guardians for our minor children. Mm. Those are the three main things. Okay. I think the important thing to know that the main thing that a will does not do, and I think this is probably the biggest misconception in the general public, is a will does not stop a probate case. Mm. There's nothing else taken away from today. That is probably (laughs) the biggest message is a will does not stop a probate case. Okay. A will does also does not let us indicate distributions over time. So say, for instance, I want to leave everything to my child and my child is 17. Mm. The day my child turns 18, if I am gone, the check gets cut. Wow. Whatever there is. Now, as a parent of a 19-year-old, and I think she's fantastic, (laughs) I would not want her to get that check the day she turned 18. Yeah, that could be a, a recipe for disaster if you're not careful. Oftentimes it is. So I guess we talked about a little bit what a will does and a little what it doesn't do. There's so much more to it. But the difference between that and a trust is a trust can actually give you the ability to avoid a probate case entirely. It also gives you the ability to allow for distributions over time. Okay. So if I don't want my child to get everything that there is at whatever, you know, the day they turn 18 or whatever age they might be at the time I pass, Perhaps I'd like there to be distributions for specific purposes, maybe for a college education or assisting with down payment of a first home or those kinds of things. And I want to spread it out over time. A trust lets me do that. Okay. It also lets me come up with a whole lot more in the way of backup provisions and a lot more in the way of protections. Okay. So say I pass and all I have in place is a will and my child subsequently gets divorced after there's been a distribution. I have no ability to protect where that money now goes once it's been distributed. Mm. I have the ability to do things like that in a trust. Other scenarios that can come up, what if somebody I am looking to distribute to is receiving some kind of needs-based government benefits, somebody's on disability. Yep. And now a distribution gets made under a will, and now I may very well have just disqualified that person from all those benefits they were receiving, which I yes. never intended to do. No. But because I didn't plan, can't plan that way in a will, I can plan that way in a trust. Okay. The other sort of side note on that is a trust is not just to benefit you once you pass. A trust is a tool for using your ability to appoint these folks to manage your money and your assets while you're incapacitated as well. It serves both functions. Okay. And because the process of having a trust in place requires that you retitle your assets, into the name of the trust, which okay. sounds complicated, but isn't. Yeah, for real. <laughs> it allows you to avoid a probate case. Wonderful. Because the assets are not in your individual name at that point. They're in the trust name. So when the party dies, while well, we certainly were, we're sad that we've lost them, yeah. it will, if done correctly, can avoid that whole need for a probate case. 
Wow. That's all amazing information. And I can't wait to talk a little bit more about that next time, Heather. Next time, I really want to dive into that a little bit more, as well as maybe some of the more advanced trust applications as we're thinking about potential tax law changes and all of those things that have come down the pike this year and and are coming. I really want to dive into that in a little more detail next time. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Awesome. Well, we'll see you in a few weeks. Heather, where can folks find you if they want to learn more about how you can help? They can find me on the web at parkerlawaz.com. My office number is 480-264-5177, and I'd be happy to help. Oh, wonderful. Thanks, Heather. You can find me, Shanna Tindrum, with Heritage Financial Strategies at heritagefinancialaz.com. Click schedule a consultation in the top right corner, and we're happy to help as well. Thanks for being with us, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. 